You're listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May you be challenged and encouraged by this message. Having the affections of your heart stirred towards greater love and understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami. I love sunny days. That might be obvious to perhaps a lot of you living here in Miami, like, well, that's what we do here in Miami is we love the sun. But I was born in Minnesota, and I have lived in seven different states that range from California to South Carolina. States like Indiana, Georgia. I remember a time in Los Angeles, California, where I had some friends from Indianapolis, Indiana visit, and they were visiting during the wintertime, at least it was for them, not so much for us in California, and my wife was hosting a meal in our backyard with them, and they looked up in the sky, and they said, what's that yellow ball in the sky? So that's called the sun. And they were lamenting how in Indianapolis they had not seen it for months during the winter a state that we had moved, we eventually moved to ourselves and knew that. There would be months at a time in which we had not seen the sun. It would just be a gray reality. But this isn't just true whether you're from Minnesota or from Indiana or maybe even here in Miami with dark days and stormy clouds. Think about places like Alaska. Alaska, if you live in Alaska north of the Arctic Circle, there's times of the year where you do not see the sun at all. 24 hours after 24 hours after 24 hours. Even further south in Alaska, places like Juneau and Anchorage, the sun will be only up for a little bit of time during the winter, but during the summer it's the exact opposite. It'll be up for over 19 and a half hours. My wife and one of our children had a chance years ago to go to Alaska during the summer, thankfully the summer, not the winter, And one time we went to the store at midnight to go shopping just because I want to see what it's like to shop at midnight in broad daylight. I love the sun. And I like the reality of what it teaches us and what it shows us. But whether it's Indianapolis or Anchorage in the summer, the reality is no matter what the actual climate is, no matter what weather is like outside, frightful or delightful, we still live in a dark world. Pastor Justin talked about that last week in John 15. The reality of being persecuted. A reality that we do live in a time and a place where it is indeed dark. It's this way because of the long shadow of sin. People around us in the world are being spiritually blind, and as a result, they stumble deeper into sin's hopeless gloom, engaged in what the Scripture says, the unfruitful deeds of darkness. Listen to what Proverbs chapter 4, verse 19 says. It says, the way of the wicked is like darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. Yet those who foolishly substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, as Isaiah 5.20 says, do so without excuse. Listen to what Romans chapter 1 verse 21 says, for even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. 
Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 18, that they are darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. Solomon would say in Ecclesiastes 2, verse 14, the fool walks in darkness. And John himself says in John chapter 12, the one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. So friends, it does not matter whether the sun is shining or not. It is still a dark time because of the reality of how people's hearts are. And you would think that sinners hopelessly lost in the darkness would come to the light, and yet in a strange paradox, as we'll see this morning, people love the very darkness that ensnares them, that traps them. And to see this, I want to ask you to turn your Bibles to John chapter 8. Now, you might be thinking, well, wait, why John 8? Why not Galatians 4? to return back to where we were two weeks ago. Well, we will get to Galatians 4. But this morning, we're in John 8. And I'm going to tell you why we're in John 8. Because we're tying together a number of themes for us. So you can see the continuity. We're tying together our prayers for our missionaries. We're also seeing the connection from what Justin Harris taught last week in John 15. And our own teaching in Galatians. The reality of what it sees there, as we'll even see a sneak peek later this morning. John chapter 8. And John chapter 8 is essentially going to serve as a case study for what Paul has been teaching the Galatians about in the book of Galatians. And if this is your first time with us at uh, Grace Church, welcome. We are normally in the book of Galatians on Sundays, but for this morning we're in John chapter 8, the Gospel of John. John chapter 8, beginning in verse 12. Let me just read you this first section. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but who sent me. In your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself. And the Father witness about me. They said to him, therefore, Where is your Father? And Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. Now, we'll stop there. We're going to continue in the following verses in just a minute. But let me just kind of give you a sense of where we're going to be this morning in John chapter 8, verses 12 through verse 38. We're going to learn, and here's really the main point, we're going to learn that the sin, that sin brings death, but Jesus Christ brings life. Sin brings death, 
but Jesus Christ brings life. And what we see, first of all, just going back to verse 12, is the claim. Jesus' claim in verse 12 is, I am the light of the world. Now, this is significant just to kind of bring you into context here so you can understand what's happening. This is in the context of the the Feast of the Tabernacles or the Feast of the Booths. Uh, For example, if you see this, talks about this in John chapter 7. And the significance of this, in John chapter 7, verse 1, after this time Jesus went into Galilee, he would not go into Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now, verse 2, John chapter 7, the feast of booze was at hand, so his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea. Your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. And so he goes on to this context in which he later on would say, look at John chapter 7, verse 37, he says, on the last day of the feast, he says, if, and he stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me and drink, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. This he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not yet been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So just understand the context here. This is a Jewish, Sab- a Jewish festival time, the Feast of Booze, sort of celebrating, coming up into Passover. He is celebrating here, and he's teaching them. And here he is now in John chapter 8, saying, I am the light of the world. Jesus has already said in John chapter 1, verse 5, that he was the light that shines in the darkness. John chapter 1, verse 9, it says, He is the true light which is coming into the world, enlightening every man. When he was an infant, Simon called him a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. While Matthew in another gospel records that Jesus was to fulfill what was spoken through the Isaiah prophet. In Matthew chapter 14, verses, or chapter 4, verses it says, the people were sitting in darkness, saw a great light, and those who were sitting in the land in the shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. It is as he declared the light of the world. Friends, this is quite a claim to make. Jesus is essentially telling this audience, everything you've been waiting for, everything you've been longing for is fulfilled in me. And you can tell the audience who he's having this conversation with. He's having with a bunch of religious people known as the Pharisees. Now, if you're not familiar with the Bible, you're not familiar with the Bible in this context, the Pharisees were a group of Jewish people who, wanting to protect God's Word, created extra laws that they called sort of fences to protect the law from being broken. So they created extra commands as an attempt at holiness. So if you didn't break their laws, well, good news, you'd be kept from ever breaking God's law. But their laws became greater than God's law. And they kind of prided themselves in how they obeyed their laws. And they found their righteousness in what they did as a statement of a declaration of what righteousness they had versus other people's unrighteousness. And Jesus is saying, you think you're intelligent, you're actually quite ignorant. You think you're illuminated, you're actually quite ignorant. You think you understand, you're actually quite foolish. And you can see the response here, this claim he's making. He says, I am the light of 
the world. Now, this is a profound statement. Not only because of the statement he's making about himself, but because of who it's for. I am the light of the world. You have to understand, Jewish sensibilities at the time wanted a redemption. They wanted someone who would set them free from the oppression of the overconquering of the ruling army of the Roman Empire. But they wanted somebody for themselves, not for the world. The world were the Gentiles. The world were known as the Greeks. The world were known as the dogs in their vernacular, the sort of pejorative language. We only want a Savior for us. And Jesus is saying, as a Jewish person himself, born as a Jew, but born of a virgin, as a son of God, he is saying, I am the light of the world. He's making a claim not only for every Jewish listener, but for every listener, regardless of whether or not they're Jewish. They're basically saying, what gives you the right to say this? You are bearing witness about yourself, it says there, verse 13. And then he basically gets into a conversation saying, I'm not speaking on behalf of myself. I'm speaking on behalf of the Father who sent me, which is this dynamic relationship between him and the Father. Now, let's be very clear here, lest we miss this. For those of you who come from a different background, let me explain. Some of you come from a background, specifically oneness Pentecostal background, that taught that there's no such thing as the doctrine of the Trinity. The belief that there is three persons in one Godhead. A mystery, but nevertheless a certainty as taught in the Scriptures. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. Oneness Pentecostalism and other forms of modalism, as has been declared heresy since the 300s, is a teaching that essentially says God basically appears in different modes, hence the term modalism denying the Trinity as if they're not distinct persons. I would just politely say here, friends, if you were ever taught that, one, you were taught wrongly, and two, Jesus is the one telling you that. He is making himself reference as God the Son, referring to God the Father as another person. In fact, he makes an appeal to two persons, if you will. Go, if you can, to the text where he says this, talking about the two persons and how the law is written in verse 17. In your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. Now, that's not the point of the text, the Trinity, but I would be remiss as a pastor in Miami if I didn't pull the car over and point out for those who might struggle with believing the doctrine, the biblical historic doctrine of the Trinity, which Jesus himself believes in. So anybody tells you otherwise, just say, can we have a moment and talk about John 8 or Matthew 4 when Jesus is being baptized and there's Jesus in the person and God the Father is speaking and the angel and the Spirit of God is descending upon him like a dove, it says. There's the Trinity or you can see it in Ephesians chapter 1. The point is God is one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, Deuteronomy 6, in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. Coming now back to the text for our purposes this morning, Jesus is making a claim. He is the light of the world. There's no higher person to claim as a witness than himself and the Father. And the reality is they're not interested in him because of what, not of what he is not offering, but because he's not, but not because of what he's offering, because of what he's not offering. Jesus is not saying you're fine. He's saying you're not fine. 
Now, why does this matter for anybody in this room today? Because the problem is the people in this setting that Jesus is talking to thought they were okay because they were keeping God's law. They were, in the modern-day vernacular, obeying the Bible. Now, they also thought they're okay, which also, also because of their genealogical descendants. They were specifically ethnically Israeli, Israeli, and so they thought because of that, they're okay. And Jesus is basically, basically saying, you're wrong on both accounts. You're close, but you're still wrong. Close doesn't count. That same mistake could be made here this morning. You could be making the mistake to think, I'm good with God and God is good with me because I am doing the right things. Well, that's actually not true at all. But that's a correction that needs to be distinctly made, which we're going to see continuing in the text, because that takes us now to the crisis. Look at the crisis. Verse 21. He said to them again, I'm going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. That's a crisis, friends, if there ever was one. Continue in the text. Look at what he says. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself since he says where I'm going, you cannot come? He said to them, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world and I am not of this world. Friends, the crisis is people who think they have peace with God, do not and are going to die in their sins. But why is that? Well, he tells them. He tells them why this is happening. Because you are from below and I am from above, I told you that you would die in your sins. The significance here is the reality that they would not believe. See, Jesus is really having a rather confrontational, dare I say, corrective conversation on people who think they're okay with God. And he's bringing clarity to where otherwise confusion is understood. I mean, look if you will at verse 24. He says, I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Verse 34, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Think about the reality of this. Man's plight, according to Ephesians 2, is he's born in his trespasses and sins. I have to teach him that. He is inclined that way. He is hardwired that way. But here's not only his plight, here's also his penalty. He will die accordingly. He's talking about a debt that they cannot pay. I think about debt... I think about the reality of how consumer debt has increased as much as it has. Do you know that the average U.S. household credit card debt stands at $15,191? The average U.S. household consumer debt, if your credit card debt is $15,000, the average mortgage debt would be $220,000. In Miami, we're like, we wish. Average student loan debt is $40,000. And total American consumer debt, we owe as Americans over $11 trillion. 
just, just shy of a trillion in credit card debt, almost two trillion in student loans, and 11 trillion in mortgages. I mean, just the reality of that. You've often seen it on police shows, perhaps in reality or in fictitious creations, coming up on the criminal and yelling at the criminal, put down your gun and step away from the car. A lot of people today should be told, put down your credit card and step away from the store. You are drowning in a sea of debt. The reality for credit card companies for a lot of them is that they understand that there's a, there's a certain dollar threshold. Once they can get an American to cross over that threshold in an expense, statistically speaking, they'll have them for life. And that's the goal, is to keep getting you to that point, have you for life. You become a slave. Even the Bible says this. What's happening here, Jesus says, these desires, these sinful desires have created a crisis. And the crisis has consequences to it, and those consequences are eternal. This debt seemingly is insurmountable. You will die in your sin. And it's being said to the least likely people you'd ever expect to tell this to. I mean, you've got to imagine, if you're listening in on this conversation from a distance, there's Jesus having that conversation with the Pharisees, singing the most religious people in the crowd, and you're listening on this thing, and in one sense, you're like, man, he's putting the smack down on them. I mean, that man is merciless. He's going at it. He's putting them in their place. But in this sense, you're like, uh, I'm a little concerned. Because if that's true for them, who I consider better than myself, how much more true is that for me, who am not at the temple all the time? I'm not giving the sacrifices like I should. I'm not doing all the religious things that they're doing. So if they're in hot water, how much more am I in hot water? Well, we not only see the claim, we not only see the crisis, Jesus also gives us the cure. I mentioned in passing, but go back to verse 24. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. Now track with me here as he came, this continues to unfold in this conversation. Verse 25. So they said to Him, Who are you? And Jesus said to them, Just what I am telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world, there it is again, what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, talking about his crucifixion, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. Stay with me. Verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham, and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you'll become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. A slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. 
So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. Verse 39, they answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. And Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is of God. All right, we'll stop there. We talked about the claim, talked about the crisis. Now Jesus talks about the cure. In verse 24, it comes down to simply this. Do you believe Jesus or not? Say, believe Jesus what? Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? That's a fundamental question today for everybody sitting in this room. And you'll notice that there's sort of two responses to Jesus' conversation with this crowd. Response number one, encouragingly, are those who believed him. Response number two, concerningly, are those who rejected him. Now, just as a sidebar comment, if I can say it as a preacher myself of God's Word, an odd sense of encouragement to me personally, to realize that this morning, sadly, but the reality is not everybody will walk out of this room as a believer in Christ. I wish that was not true. I would wish for everybody here who does not know Jesus Christ to surrender their life to Him, to recognize that He is the Son of God who perfectly obeyed the Word of God fulfilling the law of God as a substitute, and then died as a sacrifice on the cross. The very thing he talks about, being lifted up, the Son of Man being lifted up, as he's referencing his own resurrection to come, I mean, excuse me, his own crucifixion to come, and then having been buried in the grave for three days, be resurrected and appearing to more people than are sitting in this room this morning. Every one of them personally vouching for it. That's really him. He really is alive. And then after 40 days, then resurrecting and then ascending after three days of having resurrected, then ascending to be with the Father, where he's at the right hand of God, where he will return again to judge the world according to his righteousness. I want everybody in this room to believe that and to give your life for that reality. The sad truth is that won't be happening this morning. 
perhaps in the future. But here's an odd sense of encouragement to me. I can't imagine a better communicator of the good news of Jesus than Jesus himself. A better preacher at the word of God than Jesus himself. And sadly, tragically, that entire crowd does not believe him. The question is not what the crowd is doing. The question is what are you doing? How are you responding? And he really gets into this issue about how to discern yourself. Notice, if you will, the connection here. Verse 30, talk about many believing in him. He says in verse 31, to those who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Now, do me a favor. Keeping your finger in the Gospel of John, turn to 1 John. That's to the right in your Bibles, almost to the end of the Bible. You can get to the very end of the book of Revelation, then just turn a little bit to the left, past the book of Jude, 3 John, 2 John, 1 John. Now look with me at a couple passages I want you to track with me here, because I think this will help provide clarity so there might be some confusion for the Christians in the room of what Jesus is talking about and what he's not talking about. 1 John chapter 1, look with me at verses 5 through 7, first of all. John writes, same author reading earlier in John chapter 8, this is the message we have heard from him, referring to Jesus, and proclaim to you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Verse 7, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Now, jump ahead to chapter 3. Same book, same audience. Look at verse 4 and following. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning that either has either seen him or has known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Now, turn back to chapter 1 of 1 John, but look at me first before we look at the verses. There are some Christians in the room right now who are confusingly thinking, concerningly about themselves, and the fact that you still struggle with sin, that maybe you're not a Christian. It's a common temptation for Christians to think that. 
repeating patterns of sin. Some are public, gossip, laziness. Some are private, lust, and envy. Some you do publicly, some you do in the darkness and privacy of your own room. And the awareness of that repeating pattern causes you to wonder, am I even a Christian? I've had those moments myself. What I want you to see in 1 John is that what John is talking about, which is coming from the teaching of Jesus, is not the presence of sin, but the ongoing repeated practice of sin without any intention to confess it, to repent of it, and to fight against it. Which, going back to chapter 1 of 1 John, look at what he says in verse 8. If we say we have no sin, 1 John chapter 1, verse 8, we deceive in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar and His word is not in us. Here's the point. Christians don't become sinless once they become Christians. Christians, ironically, become more aware of their sin than they ever have before. And because of the Word of God and the Spirit of God and the community of the people of God, feel convicted by it and desire to confess it and turn from it and have an ongoing civil war inside of them until the day Christ comes back or they go home to be with the Lord. But the presence of that fight, ironically, illustrates they're in Christ. The problem is for others of you who self-identify as a Christian are knowingly living in sin, not bothered by it. No intention to turn from it. Conscience doesn't convict you from it. And I would mean to say to you, friend, I I think you might be self-deceived. John thinks you might be self-deceived. Jesus in John chapter 8 thinks you might be self-deceived. Here's the point. Works do not save you. Jesus is so clear about that. John chapter 8 verse 24. Believing in me is what saves. Works do not save you, but works illustrate oftentimes whether or not you're saved. And he gets to them in John chapter 8, back to our text, and saying to them, some of them have been self-deceived to think that. Verse 34, truly, truly, I say to you, John chapter 8, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. But then to the encouraging reality of those who are Christians, verse 36, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Now, how does that connect to Galatians? Here's how it connects to Galatians. In John chapter 8, he's talking to a bunch of Jewish people. In Galatians, Paul, his disciple, is talking to a bunch of non-Jewish people who ironically want to go back and live like they're a bunch of Jewish people by, by living by the law. And Paul's saying in Galatians, you're free from the law. 
you're free from the law. But do not use your freedom to sin. In fact, Galatians chapter 5, verse 13, a text will come to in the coming week, says, You were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love as yourself. Let's get practical. For those of you who self-identify as Christians and you're feeling the conviction of sin, friend, welcome to the reality of what it's like to fight. You don't fight alone and you don't fight powerless and you don't fight directionless. The Word of God directs us. The Spirit of God gives us the grace to fight and you don't fight alone. You're in a pe- with the people of God. But friend, it's not just what you're fighting against, it's also what you're fighting for. Paul says in Galatians, our freedom that Christ gives us from the law is to now be exerted in loving one another. Who at Grace Church can testify of your love for them at Grace Church? I don't say that because I don't think it's true. If time permitted, I could just go name by name and face by face of how served and loved one another. We had the tragic passing of Dylan's mom just a few weeks ago. And how many, not only on the day of the funeral of his mother, drove by carloads full of people to be all the way over in St. Petersburg to just say, we are with you as family. But then one week later came another eight hours on the road to just say, we are with you in the reality that you now have to deal with your mother's household possessions. And you are not alone in that. I will give up my Saturday. I will give up my time. I will give up my freedom. I'll give up my money to serve you. I get a text from two young women in our church. They know who they are. Others of you know who they are. Who say, hey, we don't want to use our summer for ourselves. We want to use our summer availability to serve others. We want to babysit. We want to provide date nights. We want to help out. So pick a date. It's yours. We're coming. Man, that's freedom in Christ for the good of loving others. Example after example after example is in this room. Friend, I mean to commend you if that is your example. And the words of Paul Thessalonians, excel so more. And I mean to challenge you if that's not your example. Imitate those who are modeling that for you because there are so many examples at Grace Church of those who don't just love themselves, the world does that but love others because they've been free from the sin of the flesh. To love others, to pray for others, to encourage others, to share meals together. Just yesterday morning with two others from Grace Church reminded of one of their examples of how they open up their homes so regularly with hospitality, spending their money that they make to feed others in their apartment, in their condo, to just say, come eat, let's taste and enjoy the richness of what we have in Christ and fellowship with one another. The time they give to that. The Pharisees knew nothing of that. Yet they appeared to be the most religious in the room. So friends, if you're in Christ, use that freedom to love those in Christ. If you're not in Christ, you need to deal with the reality of whether or not you have believed in Christ. There could be no greater testimony given to you than Jesus himself 
It's not will you listen to me, but will you listen to him? Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May God draw you nearer to Him through His Word. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami.